being here. I know that the weather and rain and all that, but you guys are the super Christians. You've made it. So uh, glad you're here. There, just let me kind of start off by saying this. Uh, I know weather can be scary. And uh, so there's, there's two things happening this morning, one of which will let you look at your phone. So if you start looking at your phone while I'm preaching, I'm not going to take offense to. Uh, the other reason, if you look at your phone, I will take deep offense to and call you out. If you check the weather this morning, I will call you out. If you check the masters, you're good. Don't worry about it. No judgment here, okay? Uh, I never come to the stage with my phone. I have my phone in my back pocket so I can check the masters. So we might have a brief intermission halfway through, check the leaderboard, come back in. If you don't know what the masters are, get out. Uh, That's it, just kidding. But seriously, know that the elders, we're watching the weather. Uh, we might come back up. We have a membership class after this. Uh, we might come back up at the end to say, hey, why don't you guys just hang out for 15, 20 more minutes. We might scoot up membership class. There, there might be some tweaks we make towards the end of the gathering in reference to weather, but uh, right now I think we're good. Um, so if you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 22 is where we're going to camp out uh, for our time together. And there's a bunch we've got to read. So as you're flipping, um, let me kind of set the page for where we are as a church before we get to um, the text. So we, we've been teaching through the book of Luke. Um, let me stop real quick just so you don't get a dead battery. A blue Honda Accord, your lights are on. And it would stink to jump you off in the rain. So if you have a blue Honda Accord, you might want to go take care of that. That's just a prophetic voice coming in my head right now. Uh, Barrow County tag, that's what else I'm getting. Lord, keep receiving this. Just kidding. They're telling me in the back. That's all. Um, There it is. So um, this Friday, we're having our first official Good Friday service, which I'm excited about. And then we'll have Easter next week. We're going to have some baptisms already. If you're interested in becoming baptized, I think what a a better way to picture Easter in our mind to see baptisms. So if you're interested in that, come talk to me after the gathering. We can uh, work that out and talk throughout the week. Uh, But here's the last thing I'll say about Easter. Uh, And we've we've said it over and over again. Um, I I read statistics all over the place, 80%, 90%. But people are receptive to coming to hear the good news of the gospel, whether we believe it or not. Uh, and so what we're pleading with, I know that the temptation is to, my parents want me to come home to their church so I can eat deviled eggs and have a good time. Um, but I would plead with you, I'd stay here. Think about the people that you go to class with, that you go to work with, that you live around. Invite them to the gathering next week. Invite your family up to the gathering. Um, don't go home because your friends that don't know Christ aren't going home. They're staying here. So, so I plead with you, stay here, invite your friends, because I promise you this weekend, next week, and every week after, we're going to present the gospel here. Um, and I want your friends to hear that. I want family to hear that. Um, so please make it a point to be here for Easter. The last thing before we jump into the text. Uh, last week, if you guys were here, we announced that we uh, have three churches now with a network. Um, so right now, currently, we have this congregation, we have the Branch Milledgeville, and we have Mercy Hill and Kennesaw, which is a huge, awesome thing the Lord's doing. Um, we We are accepting applications for the pipeline. So the goal of having these three churches is that we can plant churches faster. And the way that we do that is through our leadership pipeline. So if you're interested in leadership, ministry, church planting, anything like that, um, please email me and I will send you out the application. I think we have about 15 people um, that have requested the application already. Um, So if you're interested in that, come talk to me after and uh, make sure you get that turned in. Sound good? Cool. All right. So as a pastor, as we're getting into Luke 22, I feel like I'm always in a little bit of confrontation, Um, whether it be over ecclesiology, how the church functions, whether it be over theology, whether it be over doctrine, uh, the church's vision. I feel like there's a constant like almost argument that I'm having to to wade with people throughout life. But today I'm going to make a statement, and this is a declarative statement. This is no and, ifs, or buts. There's no questions. There's no nothing about it. This is the truth, and you have to deal with it or not, okay? So just kind of as I'm prepping this statement, there's no wiggle room. There's no argument here. You ready? The Sandlot is the greatest movie of all time. (laughs) Don't disagree because I'm not going to listen. It's not the best, but it's one of the best. And my kids, now that like I'm growing up, I can watch movies with my kids. And a lot of movies these days for kids are just trash. So we keep going back to the old ones. Um, And I was watching Sandlot a couple weeks ago with my kids. And it got to the part at the end of the movie. Who hasn't seen Sandlot? I just got to embarrass you real quick. What is happening? 
You have not seen Sandlot? I don't even know this is going to work anymore. So they get to the end, right, where the whole premise for Jen, and I, I'll take care of you. You're okay, but these. He's, he's like 10. He's, he's okay. He can't choose as the movies he sees. I can't choose as to say correct words either, but you do. So the whole premise is uh, Smalls steals a baseball that's signed by Babe Ruth, hits it over the fence. The beast, the big dog, eats it. And so the whole movie is them trying to get the dog. What? Spoiler alert, excuse me. That's the point of the movie. So at the very end, um, they pickle the beast. Benny the Rat Jet Rodriguez gets the ball back. They go around to Mr. Myrtle and say, hey, listen, we knocked down your fence. Your dog got out. We were trying to get this ball. And James Earl Jones, just this iconic voice, right, says, uh, well, hey, like, I'll, I'll, I'll make a trade. I'll take that ball and I'll give you this ball. And he gives them the ball signed by the 1927 Yankees, right? Y'all familiar with this? Um, So this huge exchange takes place where uh, Mr. Myrtle takes this old ball that's worth nothing and turns around and gives Smalls this ball. Who knows the value of this ball? And the quote, I mean, to be honest, I tear up a little bit every time this happens. Um, Smalls asks him, don't judge, why would you trade? This one's all chewed up. And Mr. Myrtle smiles back and says, because you need it more than I do. And what we're going to see through the scriptures this morning, some theologians call the great or the glorious exchange. We're going to see what takes place uh, when God says, you need this more than I do. I'm going to take care of this. Here's this exchange that's happening. And so it opens up the, the world for us to see, man, like there's something that we have and it's a nasty old chewed up baseball. But what we get in return, uh, there's, it's millions and millions. I mean, there's no dollar tag you can put on what we get back from this exchange. So um, Luke 22, we're going to pick it up in verse 63. And we've got to work our way. There's a bunch of texts that we're going to hit this morning. Um, we're going to end up in 23, 25. So we're going to read a little bit, talk a little bit, try to get through some of this together uh, and see this glorious exchange take place. So if if you guys have been here for a while, we've been working through the book of Luke. Uh, This is Palm Sunday, uh, which I would say it's actually Palm Monday, but Christmas wasn't in December either, so we're okay. Um, This is Palm Sunday, but we actually preached Palm Sunday in October. Um, So if you want to listen to our Palm Sunday message, go back to October, because we've been working our way through the book of Luke. Um, Today we'll hit uh, Jesus' arrest and all that that takes takes place there. Whoa, stutter. Uh, All that takes place there. Um, Good Friday will handle his death, and then on Easter we'll preach through the resurrection. And we've got two more weeks in Luke, and then we're done. Uh, But the text we have to do with this morning is, is all the court cases and the trials that takes place with Jesus. So we'll pick it up, 22, verse 63. So Jesus has just been arrested, has brought down, Peter is in Adam three times, and here's where we pick it up. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking, prophesy, who is that that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. So we've got to consider the nature, and I've been trying to plead with you guys from the first day we started Luke, that this isn't just some story, this isn't some fiction narrative, this actually happened. We need to put our mind, put our souls into this story, because Jesus' rejection was both physical and emotional. I mean, there's that old additive, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Well, he got both. This innocent man was getting beaten, was getting mocked, was being blasphemed against. And he sat there and said nothing. Now we just have to admit right away, we are all justifiers. Every single, even if we know that we're wrong, we're gonna try to talk our way out of different situations. So here's Jesus, the son of God, sitting there, innocent, taking this emotional abuse and this physical abuse. And it reminds me, Matthew 12, 31 says this. Therefore, I tell you, this is Jesus, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So God has already said through Jesus, this sin that these guards are committing can be forgiven. I mean, what kind of sin, what kind of God would just say, I will forgive the blasphemers? 
These people mocking me, beating me, accusing me of all these things, there's forgiveness for you too. If you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, if you slander the Spirit, there's no forgiveness there. But what's happening right here in between us, I still love you. There's still forgiveness for you. There's not a single one of us. There's really good people in this room, way better than I am. There's not a single one of us that would do that. So we've got to get our mind in what Jesus is going through in his literal literal last hours of life. So let's pick it up, verse 66. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and led them away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, I will tell you, you will not believe. Verse 68. And if I ask, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. I mean, Jesus is just laying into him. You're not going to listen. I've tried for three years to reason with you. I've tried for three years to love you, to preach the gospel to you. You're not going to listen. But here's what I will tell you. This is it for me. And I'm going to be seated at the right hand of the Father forever. Do with that what you want. Verse 70, so they all said, are you the son of God then? He said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We've heard it ourselves from his own lips. So we see the first trial that Jesus goes through is the religious, right? Because we have this weird, I don't know that we can fully understand because we're not living in there. You have Rome that's overseeing all that's taking place, but you also have the Jewish land that Rome's just kind of letting them handle, letting them manage because they know that they can't control it. So it's kind of like a federal government, state government, but, but not really. It's kind of that, that's the best thing that I can relate it to. So the first court case Jesus goes through is the Jewish, which blasphemy would have been, a, 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 I mean, he could have died. They would have stoned him right there for him saying, I am God, that offense is worth death. But the Jews can't do that under Roman rule. They can't kill, they can't stone people to death like they used to under this rule that they're under. So what they're going to have to do is to trick Jesus into admitting this, which he does. He rightfully says, yes, I am he. He answers in the affirmative. It's almost like he's saying, I wouldn't have put it in those exact words, but basically what you're saying is true. Yes, I am God. And if you would have listened to my words all throughout the rest of my teaching, you would have gathered that too. So this just sets them off. What else do we need? What more do we need? Let's take them to the Roman council. Let's get this dude murdered. This is it. We'll pick it up in verse 23 when they take him over. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, verse 2. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying himself that he's Christ a king. Do you see what's happening? They're trying to manipulate Rome. Not just saying that they find him, he thinks he's a God, but he thinks he's a king because Rome is going to go, I don't, I, y'all, get out of here, Jewish people. I don't care. He could say, he's, as long as he's not doing anything illegal in the eyes of Rome, your little Jewish thing doesn't matter to us at this level. So they have to spin it, right? They have to say, no, no, here's what's actually taking place. He's telling us, don't give to Caesar, which he never said. He actually said the opposite, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God's what is God's, right? And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching through all all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. So Pilate is a huge part of the story. He ruled this part under Rome's rule. He ruled it uh, from 26 to 36 A.D., And we're going to see about Pilate, how he goes down in history, because it's not long after this takes place that that Pilate just kind of disappears. But he will forever go down his history as a man that sends an innocent man to death. Let me rephrase that. The coward that sends an innocent man to death. This is who we deal with, with Pilate. And this is where we just start to see some of his cowardly nature come out. Because the moment that he hears uh, in verse 5, Galilee, he said, oh, wait, wait, he's from Galilee? Okay, get him out of here. You need to send him to Herod, because technically that's his jurisdiction. I can't actually rule here. So, so get him to Herod. That's where we're going to pick it up in verse 6. And we should, Herod should ring a bell at some level. This same Herod is the one that killed John the Baptist that had his head put on a plate. 
That's the kind of rule, the authority that these guys had. Verse six, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged in Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at the time. So all the rulers, all the governors had come into Jerusalem for this Passover feast, one to kind of save face, to show that the Jewish people in their jurisdictions that they loved and they cared for, so they're gonna show support. They didn't, it was a political move. But then also to keep the peace because there was millions of people coming into Jerusalem for this time. So they were bringing all hands on deck to try to keep the peace there. And when Herod, verse eight, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some signs done by him. Did y'all catch that? Herod had heard about Jesus and heard about the miraculous signs and Herod wanted to see him that Jesus' fame had actually spread so much so that this Herod, this governor said, yeah, I would love to see him. Let's see if he'll do something in my midst, verse nine. So we questioned him about some at length, but he made no answer. I want y'all to catch this. Herod is the only one that Jesus never responded to. Herod is the only one that Jesus never responded to. Verse 10, the chief priests and the scribes stood by vehemently accusing him and Herod with his soldiers treated him with content and mocked him. They arraigned him in splendid clothing, which is uh, not splendid clothing, this sarcasm. He sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day before they were enemy with one another. So what brought these evil rulers together? The mocking and the beating of Jesus. So Pilate did a good cowardly thing. No, you, you go, go to Herod, that's Herod's call. I mean, that's such a political move. Herod has the power. You need to go talk to Herod about that. And Herod, man, thank you so much. You value my opinion. You value my insight. No, Pilate doesn't. He's just a coward that didn't want to make this call. And he thought Herod would do the hard thing for him. But Herod said, man, I, I don't find anything at fault with him either. Go, go back, let Pilate take care of it. But Herod's, Herod's uh, subliminal message behind it is do with him what you want. He's at no good to me. He didn't perform for me. He didn't even talk to me. He's no good for me. So I trust you to do what the right thing is. Verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any charges you have against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish him and release him. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. Innocent, 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 innocent. I don't know how many times, Herod, Pilate, I don't know how many times this story can play out. There's nothing that Jesus has done. He is innocent. So in that day, they would just kind of beat him up, rough him up, say, hey, like you're, there's nothing actually legal that you've done, but we're gonna take care of you. We're gonna take you behind the shed, hit you a couple times because you're getting close to being out of line. So this is a warning, but even though you've done actually nothing, so we're gonna beat him up for you, Jews, that should make everyone calm down, and then we're gonna release him. Because he is innocent. And listen, without this innocence, nothing after this matters. If Jesus wasn't innocent, then what we're about to see on Friday and what we're about to see next Sunday on Easter, none of that matters. There's a reason that Luke, there's a reason that all the gospels keep pounding Jesus was innocent. In every court case that he went through, because do you see any witnesses coming forward? I mean, what kind of court system would this be if there was no witnesses there? Do we see that some of these trials with the Jewish leaders happened at night, which is illegal? That's why they had to wait till the next morning before they took him to Rome, because no court case could happen throughout the night. When we see all this corrupt things happening on their side, but all the gospels are screaming with all they have, Jesus's innocence. And he almost got released. Verse 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. So there was a tradition at Passover where Rome would appease the Jewish race and where they would release one prisoner. 
Verse 19, a man Barabbas who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. So here's Pilate's plan as a coward. I know what I'll do. Tradition says we can release one Jew to them for Passover. So I'm just going to release Jesus. Easy peasy, we're done. This is it. Verse 21, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Verse 22, a third time he said to them, why, what evil have he, has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Verse 23, but they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. Their voices won. Pilate, who was afraid of this, Jew, this Jewish crowd just overthrowing, going to mass chaos in the streets. Their voices prevailed. Verse 24. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So what happened? Even though Herod knew that it was wrong, even though Pilate knew that it was wrong, even though those that were screaming crucify him knew that it was wrong, that there's no innocence, or there was no fault in this man. Innocence was all that he had. Because of a mob that the Roman government was afraid of, their voices prevailed. I mean, you can just imagine Jesus sitting in the court as all of this was happening those that were following him, that were screaming Hosanna a couple days ago, are now screaming, crucify him. That you have Jesus on this side sitting there innocent, has done nothing wrong, and on the other side of the room you have Barabbas, who was a Jewish zealot, that he hated Pilate, that he hated Herod. What he was doing was trying to overthrow Rome with everything that he had. And so he was killing people as often as he could. He was rising this insurrection. He was trying to get people to follow him, to overthrow the government. I mean, you have two totally different people here. You have Jesus that was pushed all the way through every different court system he could and found innocent. And then you have Barabbas that went through that same court system. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, I know that this isn't like Judge Judy by no means, but you can imagine in your mind the courts that they were going through. That I'm sure that there were some relatives, some moms, some dads, some siblings that were coming to this court case to point to Barabbas and say, that is the man that killed my husband. That is the man that killed my son. It's him. Barabbas was given this fair and right trial. He was found as a mob leader, as a murderer. So you have two of them sitting side by side. The innocent and the guilty. And what we see Pilate do is what's been coined as the glorious exchange. That although Barabbas was guilty and deserving of murder, Barabbas gets to go free. And although that Jesus was innocent and needed and deserved freedom, Jesus was given a death sentence. And there was no death row, guys. When that final declaration of Pilate took place, it was seconds before murder was going to happen. I mean, from that order up until his death, I mean, that was all that they were doing. There was no, let's sit, let's think, let's ponder. There was no time for lawyers to come in. There was no time for secondary hearings. It was it. So what we see here, what Pilate is doing, what Pilate has just instituted is a foreshadowing of this great, this glorious exchange. That Pilate treated Barabbas, a sinner, a murderer, as an innocent free man. And Pilate treated Jesus, an innocent man, as a murderer. And what we see here from God is that God had to treat Barabbas like Jesus so that he could treat Jesus like Barabbas. We've got to understand this, this whole exchange that's taking place. 
to be honest, I mean, if I could just take a step away from this, uh, all week I've been preparing and praying for this sermon, and on a head level, I understand it all. I mean, we're about to get into some deeper theological truths here, and I understand all of it theologically, mentally, emotionally, in my heart, I can't fathom any of it. I mean, I, I can't, it's such a hard pill to swallow. We've all had these, I mean, I know the smallest example was silly, but we've all had these exchanges happen in our life that, that we just can't fathom. We don't understand why anyone would ever treat us this way. But when we start understanding exactly what Jesus did for us that day, I, I just don't know that I'll ever understand it. Mentally, yes. From an emotional heart level, no. How could Jesus sit there, an innocent man, and just let Barabbas go? So there's a couple things at play here that we have to see to understand this glorious exchange, to see how God had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. There's some pillars here that I want to hang our hat on this morning. And we first need to understand both sides of it. Because here's the reality. Let me let the cat out of the bag. Church, we are Barabbas. Don't for a second think that you're no one else in this story. You're the murderer, you're the insurrectionist, you're the sinner, you're the pagan. You are, we are Barabbas. You're not Jesus, you're not Pilate, you're not the crowd. We are all Barabbas. So to understand this exchange, clearly we have to see both sides of the coin. That Jesus has to be innocent and we have to be sinners or else this exchange doesn't work. And, and here's, here's what I know. Growing up, and, and not in a negative sense, but growing up, I heard the Ten Commandments hammered me all the time. I mean, there's even a local restaurant in Gainesville that still has the Ten Commandments printed on the cup, right? But as time goes on, the law just kind of falls to the wayside. We don't hear it preached as much. We don't hear it talked about as much. We read things from David in the Psalms that, that it kept him up at night, that he dreamed about it, that he meditated on the law. Why? We're all winners. We all deserve trophies. We got this. So as that shift starts to happen in culture, the law starts to disappear. But we all think that there's enough good in us. And I'm, I'm an actually a good person but when we study the teachings of Jesus, he takes the Ten Commandments and ramps them up 10,000 degrees. For example, do not murder. Pretty clear, right? Ten Commandments, do not murder. I would ask if anyone's murdered, but that would be awkward. Uh, I'm, I'm assuming here, I think it's a good assumption, no one in this room has murdered anyone. I killed a gerbil once, is that murder? It was an accident. Just kidding, I didn't kill one. My gerbils turned on each other and one ate his head off. That's what happened. Welcome to the branch, right? So do not murder. But Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart towards a brother, you've already committed murder. So this law over here that none of us have actually become murderers, but all of us have had sin, anger in our hearts. So Jesus says, oh, no, no, you're not innocent. You're guilty. Do not commit adultery. I can promise you, church, I've never done that. Is my wife in here? She's watching the weather. Oh, there she is. She's got her headphones in so she can listen to the weather. Nope, okay. You, you went to your car to get the headphones. Don't act like that wasn't part of the plan. Right? I've never committed adultery. I can stand here and honestly say that. But Jesus says that if you have lust in your heart over another woman, you've now committed adultery. Whoop. So this, this sin, this law that he's given us, the main premise, and go home and study Galatians, the main premise of this is to show us that we cannot do it, that none of us are innocent. We're all guilty. We are all the Barabbas. We've all gone through the court system. There's been a clear, matter-of-fact law presented in front of us, and it said, have you kept these things to a T? And all of us, if we're honest, have to say, no, none of them, not one. I can't do any of this apart from my own power. We are the guilty. And we didn't go through a corrupt court system, guys. We went through a right, just one developed by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and we're found guilty. We are Barabbas. We shouldn't mock this man because we are this man. We've been found guilty. And we have to have this to understand the exchange that takes place. 
The more that we meditate on the Lord, the more the law, the more that we understand our own sin, the deeper our love drives for Jesus. Because for this exchange to take place, I'll just, I'll just read it. Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So have you not only abided by all things written in the book of the law, but have you actually done them too? None of us in this room could say that. We're all cursed. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Why? Because we can't do it. There's no way that's going to justify us. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. What faith does it require to live out the law? None. It's all works-based. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Here's a foreshadowing of the exchange that's about to take place in Jesus' death that he became a curse for us. So we were the curse because we could not abide by the law, but he swapped and became the curse for us. This is the great, the glorious exchange. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. So in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles and we might receive the promised spirit through the faith. So we know the law, but we break the law. We can do no different. So for us to first understand the great glorious exchange that's happening between Jesus and Barabbas, which also happens between us and Christ, is to understand that we cannot, by any own merit, work, effort, keep the law. We're all guilty. Every single one of us. We have to wrestle with that. We have to own that. One of the greatest examples I've ever heard of this, because I know some of you are going, well, like, but I know this guy and he's really guilty. If we could somehow connect your mind, your thoughts to this screen, none of you would want to stay in this room this morning. Because yeah, we might be able to fake it on the outside, but if we could get all the thoughts that actually go in your mind, get them on the screen. And I'm just talking this morning. What do you have to go back to last night, two nights ago, last week? I'm talking this morning. If we could display your thoughts and your sins on the screen, none of us would want to see how that plays out. Guilty. Fair trial, just trial, guilty. So what then happens? How does Barabbas get to go free? We see an interesting thing happen here in the glorious exchange, and it's called justification. So what we see happen, justification, the act of being justified, the act of being made righteous is a legal term. So it has to happen from someone in authority to justify, to say, yes, you had been a sinner, you had been committed to this, but now you are justified. So Pilate walks into this environment as a coward, sees all this taking place. Jesus is innocent. Barabbas is already on death row. He's already guilty of all this. But because of my legal authority, I'm going to now, with my words, justify him. You're innocent. You're no longer guilty. You're free. Go free. Guards, go release him from the chains. He's out of here. And that can only happen from a legal authority. Here's the definition of justification. Justification is a legal declaration where we are declared righteous through faith alone, based on the merit of Christ alone. When Luther, Martin Luther was writing about justification, he coined this at the same time, righteous and sinner. So what does it mean for us to be justified? At the same time, righteous and sinner. And we see this take place. As Barabbas gets the chains taken off, as he walks down these stairs as a free man, is he actually innocent? No. He's still guilty. Still led this insurrection. Still murdered people. So as he's walking away, he's at the same time guilty and free. And that's what it means for us to be justified. That when Christ came, he justified us. Do we still sin? Are we still sinners? Yes. Are we righteous? If you have placed your faith in Christ, yes. But how does this work? If you have your Bibles, flip over to Romans 4 for me. Because I'm going to allude to this, but I want you guys to read this in its entirety this afternoon. Romans 4, we're going to read just one verse, verse 5. 
Romans 4, verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the, the term here is imputed righteousness, that if we have faith in Christ, in his finished work on the cross, this righteousness has been given to us. It's been imputed to us. It's been handed off to us. It's not that we've earned it. It's not that we've worked on it. It's not that we've deserved this. And we see this picture perfectly in Barabbas. What did Barabbas do to go free? Nothing. He stood there like a fool. There was, there was nothing that he had to do. Pilate gave him all the freedom. Pilate justified him by his legal authority. So if we as believers put our faith in Christ, we're at the same time sinner and righteous, that God has given us the righteousness. Now, if you're a thinker, if you're kind of wrestling with some of this stuff like I am, is it that unfair? I mean, isn't that unfair? Why would it be? Isn't that unjust? I, I went for a long streak where I got to, I figured out a, a and I can teach you this for ninety nine ninety five. I can get you out of any speeding ticket. I figured out the system. And at the same time, my wife got two speeding tickets. And what she would always scream, I'll, I'll give you a hint, shake the officer's hand. I'm telling you, it always works until the one time he got mad at you for sticking his hand out the door. He grabbed his gun, son, don't you put your hand out. I'm sorry, I got a ticket that day. But in that moment, Bree was furious with me because I was getting out of every ticket and she wasn't. Unjust. We all see and recognize, especially this younger generation, when we see injustice take place. When people didn't get a fair hearing, when they didn't get a fair, fair trial, we fight for the injustice of the little people that can't fight for their own. We, we recognize that, we see that, we can identify unjust things taking place. And if we don't look at this, we, don't, we will miss it. That this seems to be unjust. What Pilate did, is that what God does? That just gives righteousness away? But what happened to Pilate's murder conviction? What happened to the things that he was guilty of? What happens to our guilt? What happens to our sin? This, this word here, I mean, this, this uh, out of all of it has just messed me up the most this week. That he was a substitute. The, the full term substitutionary atonement that, that those sins of Barabbas didn't go unnoticed. The sins of us did not go unnoticed. They all got put on Jesus. I mean, can we just imagine for a second what was going through the mind of an innocent man when he was being beat and tortured and mocked and abused? I mean, I, I get it. I, maybe growing up in sports, maybe a guy, I understand when I mess up, you can rail on me, that's fine because I deserve it. But when I'm innocent, no. So while Jesus is being beaten, mocked, and accused, what's going through his mind? I'm doing this for Barabbas. I'm doing this for us. I'm doing this for Gabe. For the glory of God, this is why this is taking place. I'm becoming his substitute. That God has seen it fit to remove the sins of this men and women, to justify them, to declare them righteous. There must be punishment. There must be consequences for sin. So when Jesus is carrying his cross, walking to Golgotha, when he falls, he can't do it anymore. It's not because he's weak, it's because our sins are on him. When he's sorrowful to death, it's us. There's not some guilty conscience that's starting to come up and starting to deplete him. It's our sin that's being placed on him that's wearing him out. It's our sin because he's become our substitute. So the innocent man has now justified us, declared us righteous, but that sin had to go somewhere. So he became a substitute for us. 
And if we go all the way back to Luke chapter one, when the whole premise of this was written, why was the book of Luke written? To give assurance to Theopolis, everything that he had heard and seen. Yes, Theopolis, this is true, that there is a God that loves you, that he's gonna justify you through repentance and faith because there's been a substitute for you. And this is the part of the glorious exchange that I just can't, I can explain it, but I can't understand it. Why would I be deemed righteous when an innocent man had to die for that? And I just, I just wonder, this is conjecture here. I just wonder what was going through Barabbas' mind when he gets released from this. What would go through your mind? I mean, as a Jew, he knew who Jesus was. It's impossible for that not to happen. So you're sitting on the same stage, Jesus, Barabbas. The chains come off Barabbas. He's a free man. These crowds are cheering for him. Not actually, but because they got Jesus murdered. And Barabbas starts to walk off this platform. What happens in Barabbas' heart? We, we have no record of it, so this is all conjecture. But what would happen in your heart? Because in the moment of salvation, that's what takes place. That we walk free and Jesus walks to his death. This is the gospel. That as a guilty man, we've been count, counted righteous. We've been given righteousness. All we have to do is repent and believe. And Barabbas stands there and watches Jesus mocked, beaten, stripped down, the cross put on his shoulders and led away. I wonder if Barabbas even followed him just to watch to see what takes place. And as he's watching the nails rung in his wrist, he's going, that, that should have been me. As watching the cross that gets picked up and dropped into the hole with Jesus' arms getting dislocated, Barabbas is crying going, that, that should have been me. And as Jesus takes his last breath and they declare him dead, Barabbas is at this point broken and sobbing, that should have been me. Church, that is us. But he has become the substitute for us. We were guilty, but now we're declared innocent. This is the great, glorious exchange. This is the gospel. There's nothing more than this. There's nothing deeper than this. This is why Paul says, I've chosen to forget everything else other than Christ and Christ crucified. Why? Because this is all that matters. Nothing else matters except for Christ taking our sin from us. So as we're starting to wrap up, let me, let me try to apply it to some of us because I think there's, there's probably four types of people here. As we start to wrestle with this idea of the substitutionary atonement, the justification of God, I, I think the first... Have you guys ever gotten in those discussions or those arguments with someone where you try to convince them of their sin and they're just not having it? Growing up with two brothers, that was my everyday life. Growing up with four kids, that is still my everyday life. There's a constant debacle fight going on in our house. Well, they did this. No, I didn't do that. And then poor Carolee gets like accused of everything. But the truth is, she's the one that's actually doing everything. She's the master manipulator of our family. You don't believe it? Come watch. For a two-year-old, it's incredible to watch. I'm just kind of proud of her. Like the evil villain, it's cool. But, but here's the truth. If we're struggling to understand this great glorious exchange, it's probably because you don't think you sin. You are sitting in a prison cell still arguing with the guards to let you free because I'm not a sinner. That you're yelling, that you're pleading, that you're comparing, that you're judging others to make yourself feel better about yourself. That you're still at step one. You're still on the stage with Jesus. Jesus is innocent and you haven't accepted your sin. You're still arguing it and trying to justify it. Well, yeah, but I'm not a murderer. I mean, that guy deserved it. 
But like, but like, Gabe, you don't, you don't know my story. You don't know my situation. You don't know what I've gone through. I, I had to do this. That you are Barabbas arguing, yelling, demanding a new court hearing because you think you're still innocent. If you have not wrapped your mind around the depravity of your sin and the necessity for a savior, please hear me and I'm saying this in love, you're not a Christian. If you're still justifying away your sins, if you still think that you're more good than bad, then there's no way you can understand the glorious exchange. There's no way you can understand what's happening Good Friday and Easter and Palm Sunday. There's just no way that you can fathom it because the eyes of your heart are still focused on you, not on Christ. You're not a believer if you're still arguing that way. I mean, man, I could just quote Paul all day. Why do you think Paul kept saying, I'm boasting all the more in my weakness, in my sin, in my shortcomings, so that Christ become strong? When I am weak, Christ is strong. And if it's up to me, I'm done. So if you're still in your jail cell, you're still in your prison, arguing that you shouldn't be there, then I, I would plead with you, repent and believe. Understand the weight of your sin. Understand that you are a sinner, but Ephesians 4 starts with, or Ephesians 4, excuse me, 2, 4 starts with, but God. That even though you were sin, dead in your sin, now you can be alive together in Christ, but you have to come to grips with your sins. So, so maybe that's not you, and if that is, please wrestle with that. Please talk to one of the elders, one of the MC leaders about that. But, but maybe that's not quite you. Maybe you're like Barabbas, you've come to the point, you got released from the stage and you didn't even turn to tip your hat at Jesus. You just ran out and kept doing your own thing. That there's a whole theory, there's a whole idea built around, um, man, I've been saved, now I can do what I want. Anti-nominism. I can do whatever I want, I have a hall pass now. And you hear this all throughout the South. Good gracious. I have a, just sidebar, this has nothing to do with the sermon. I have a dream because I'm a type eight. Any other type eight Enneagrams? Okay, I like violence. I have a dream to start a pastor's mafia, okay? Uh, basically what the pastor's mafia would do was like, wouldn't there sin coming in with a pastor or with leadership or just individuals? We could come in in the dead of night, take them out, disappear, and no one would know what's gonna happen, okay? Don't judge me. This is a safe place, right? Here's what I wish, if I actually had the pastor's mafia, every country star, I would punch them in the face. Right? I mean, I would have some serious, can I tell you, and, and this got voted down rightfully so, but you know what I wanted to do for Easter? I wanted to rent billboards all over Dahlonega that says, you are not a Christian. Come to the branch church. That's what I wanted to do. Because we think that we have this freedom to, oh, I, yeah, I followed Christ way back when. I can do whatever I want now. That's not what takes place. When this glorious, when this great exchange happens, if we understand it, if we live it out, there's no way in our minds that that could ever take place. There's no way. I mean, we, we love these people. I say we. These people love Romans 6.1. What then shall we say? Or we keep on sinning so that grace may abound. Well, the, the more I sin, the more I get God's forgiveness. Isn't this a good thing? But they stopped reading. Verse two, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? You know what this is? I mean, let's just be real. Let's, let's bring it down for a second. These are spiritual gold diggers. That's all this is. They have no affection for Jesus. They have no love for God. They only want his stuff and what he can bring. So this camp, this tribe that we have going rampant throughout the Bible Belt is nothing more than spiritual gold diggers. I have no desire to lay down my life for you, no desire to love you, to walk in obedience to you. I just want what you can bring. And we see this listed through Herod. Why do you think Jesus didn't respond to Herod? Because Herod wanted nothing to know about the saving work of Jesus and what he was actually doing. All Herod wanted to do was give me some stuff. Let me see something. If this is you, church, I love you. We need to talk about your salvation. 
that if that is your mindset, I wouldn't say 100% like I would the first category. I would lean to, you probably don't know Christ. You don't know the reality of what Christ has done. You don't understand the glorious exchange because Paul would say in uh, 6.2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So if you're a doing this on the weekend, doing this on Sunday kind of person, I would, rest, I would really plead with you, do you understand the great exchange? Do you understand what Christ has actually done for you? But maybe not, you're not the first two, and, and this third camp, this is me 10,000%, right? Court cases happened. Jesus has been found guilty. We're going to free Barabbas. I am Barabbas. They go down to the prison cell. They open up the gate, and I close it right back. They say, no, no, like, we're here to free you, Barabbas. We're here to take off your chains. And I go, no, 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 I, I haven't done this yet. I've got to earn this. I've got to work this. I can't accept that from you yet. I haven't done enough good things. I haven't earned this yet. So I'm going to shut the door. Give me a few more months. Let me work this out on my own. Because I just can't accept this great exchange. That I know my sin. That I know my struggles. I know my temptations. And I read and I know that Jesus had none of those. That he was tempted in every way, but he did not sin. And I, I can't. I can't give you my mess, Jesus. The, the thought of all my sin sending you to the cross is too much for me. I'm gonna, I would just rather stay in this prison the rest of my life. I can't stand at that table and watch you walk away to the cross and me walk away free. I can't. So send me back to the cell. But the reality of this glorious exchange is too much to bear. That how can it be that I can become righteous, declared innocent, and you were crushed? for my sin, that you were beaten to within a point of your life, that, that your face was so disfigured that, that we couldn't even see you, we couldn't recognize you. But, but for me, Galatians 5.1 puts it this way, for freedom Christ has set us free. Therefore stand firm, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So what I'm doing by closing myself in that prison cell is submitting back to the yoke of slavery that Jesus freed me from. So I walk in this freedom. I have to constantly understand that God does not see me as sinner as I see myself. He sees me as righteous. Don't walk back to that cell. Don't willingly put those chains back on, Gabe, because you've been free. You're free, walk in obedience, walk in this freedom. Because that's where we end. That is the few of us in this room that get this freedom, that get the glorious exchange. I could say something, but I'm just gonna read something. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them because of what Christ has done and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. So what do we do with this freedom that we have? Verse 20. We were ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So when we fully get the weight of this glorious exchange that takes place, all that we can do is become ambassadors for him, pleading with people to be reconciled to God. That you are guilty. There's nothing you can do about that. There's no way you can clean yourself up, but Christ died for you. 
So we're pleading with those to be reconciled with God. So as we end, has the identity of Barabbas become a war blanket for you yet? Have we identified with we are Barabbas? We are the murderer. We are the sinner. And that's what makes this glorious exchange even better. So I'm gonna pray. We'll have a couple elders at the table. But this is a time for us to examine our own hearts. This is a time for us to, as we take communion, we're literally remembering this is where Jesus is going. The next part of this story, which we'll talk about Friday night, a good Friday, 6.30, is him dying. That's where he goes. That's why he tells his disciples, remember this. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood spilt out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And here's what I'm asking this morning. Of those four categories, where are you? Examine your heart. Ask the Spirit to speak into your heart this morning. And if you're not a believer, if, if you're still fighting for your own self, if you've not come to the grips that you are the recipient of this great exchange, then don't take communion because you don't know what it means. But for us that we do, we recognize it, we, we see it, we feel it, we don't understand it all. As we take communion, let us remember, but let us celebrate that he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God, the imputed righteousness that we are now justified, not by our works, but by the wonderful, merciful, graceful gift of God. So let's pray. Father, we, we are Barabbas. We are guilty. We have no control over the sin that lives in us. That there's nothing good, there's no power that we have, there's no strength on our own accord that we have to fight this sin off. And you knew that from the moment sin entered in the world. You knew that there would come a day where you sent your only son to be the punishment for us. Now, Father, I, I pray that, that there would be no deeper things in this that we create in theology and in doctrine and things that we try to entertain ourselves with and make ourselves feel better. That this is all we have. This is the hope. This is the gospel. This is the way, the truth, and the life. There's nothing else other than this truth, that we were sinners, but you've declared us righteous through your son's work on the cross. And this isn't some guilt-ridden, manipulative thing, Father, but this is freedom. This is true freedom. That in our sins, in our unrighteousness, we can be made whole again. We can be made new. So Spirit, I ask if, if you've wrecked me this week wrestling through these truths, God, I, I, pray, I pray that you would speak to this congregation this morning. Father, they would have to face where they truly are. Do they not understand the weight of their sin? Are they still declaring their innocence? Do, do they understand the weight, but they don't see the sacrifice you made to pay for that sin? Pray that you'd help them see that they are free to walk in that freedom. They don't have to keep themselves in this prison cell with the chains on. You have made us alive together with you. And if we understand all that, I pray that we would be ambassadors of you. That everywhere we go, we're preaching the message of reconciliation, that we can be justified through Christ's work on the cross.
So Father, would you speak as we sit? When our hearts are prepared, would we take communion? Would we remember all that you've done for us? All that you're going to continue to do for us? Jesus, it's only through your blood that we can pray to you. It's only through your grace that we can be made new. Father, thank you for this glorious exchange. Our sins for your righteousness. Father, would we would we remember what that change So church, I'm going to leave us in this season, this moment of prayer and reflection. And, uh, whenever you're ready, communion will be served on both sides of the gym and also.